Welcome, everyone, to part two of the Nolan Countdown, the latest miniseries from Some Like It, Scott. Last week, we tackled Christopher Nolan's directorial debut with the shoestring budget black and white neo-noir crime thriller following. Does that sound familiar? Because on this week's episode, we'll be diving deep into Nolan's sophomore outing, Memento, a neo-noir psychological thriller that also has some black and white in it and was made on a small budget, though certainly not as small as following. But before we get to any of that, with me today, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey, and our very special Countdown series guest, Jay Habib. Guys, how are you doing today? I'm good. I did I did have a Polaroid photo reminding me that we looked at, at uh, following last time. So I, I did remember uh, to, to answer your question. But uh, yeah, Scott, I don't know when this is going to be released, but um, it's going to be months from now, I think. So this will probably uh, this will hopefully sound really funny when we listen back to it, uh, because we're in the middle of the the coronavirus pandemic right now when the, at the time of this being recorded. Um, and yeah, I think things are looking pretty bleak. Everything has been canceled. We really don't have much to do except uh, watch movies. C- cancel culture has gone too far, as I, I saw someone say the other day. But um, but yeah, so, so like I said, hopefully when this gets released, we will be able to just have a good laugh about that month long, two week long, hopefully not longer than that period in which uh, we didn't have sports or anything like that to, to get us through life. And we were all shut up in our houses. But other than that, I'm just wonderful. And I am excited to talk about um, this this movie, you know, Nolan's breakthrough film. Yeah, I, I think this is going it's going to be going out if it's on schedule sometime in the middle of May. So like I think like May 17th ish. Um, oh, that's that's the day that I'm supposed to get my hood for uh, my my doctoral hood for completing law school. Now, again, who knows if that will even happen? But, yeah, look uh, for it in the mail. Look for it in the mail. I will. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jay, how are you doing? Uh, you know, similar to Scott Harvey, I really hope that by the time this airs and that it actually airs on schedule, right, that tenant isn't actually delayed, um, that we can all look back at this and laugh. But right now, you know, <laughs> things are tenuous at best. But we still have movies, you know, and I'm still very excited to talk about these with you. Yeah, it probably will be very surreal for our listeners to go back and and listen to the first three, four minutes of this episode. Hopefully with the pandemic or at least the worst parts of the pandemic mostly behind us, I don't think everything's going to have simply blown over in two months time. Hopefully things will have gotten better, of course. Uh, But to talk about, you know, one of the weeks and maybe rewind and listen to uh, our episode for something like it's Scott for this week to see the comparison when we probably talk about it more but a, a very surreal week and Thursday was a particularly surreal day um just watching cancellation after cancellation of every like major social event happening on the calendar sports being told to work from home etc cetera, etc cetera. it was just a really really bizarre day and nothing in my living memory really uh, li- equates to to Thursday yeah, no, I said to you, Scott, the other day that I think this is probably the biggest event of our lifetimes in the in the you know the world since 9/11 in the country certainly. Um, and but like you said, living memory, I don't I don't remember 9/11 too well. I was only six at the time, so um, yeah, I, I think I, I'd have to agree. This is just unprecedented what is going on. Well, with that, maybe uh, maybe it's best to just move on, get down to business. As I already mentioned, this week's topic of discussion will be the film that is probably fair to say is the one that put Christopher Nolan on the map as a director, starring Guy Pierce in the lead role with supporting performances from Carrie Ann Moss and Joe Pantoliano. Pantoliano? I don't actually know how to pronounce his last name. It's fine. Both of Matrix fame. Uh, Memento tells the story of Leonard Shelby, 
a man who has anterograde amnesia, that is, short-term memory loss and the inability to form new memories as a result, after a home invasion that involved the rape and murder of his wife, Catherine Shelby. Leonard lives out his days trying to solve the mystery of who assaulted him and raped and murdered his wife. He pieces together this elaborate puzzle by recording information he won't be able to remember in body tattoos and on Polaroid pictures, along with the occasional help of Pantoliano's Teddy and Moss's Natalie. Evolving his jumbled storytelling technique from following, Nolan chooses to tell Leonard's story in a model of dueling narratives, one in color that works backward in time from the end of the story, and the other in black and white that works forward from the beginning until both meet at Memento's finale. Jay, let's start with you first. After all these years, what effect does Memento's amnesic and dread-inspiring revenge tale still have on you? I mean, is it any surprise, Scott, that I still love this movie? I mean, I've been telling you to watch it for years as well. Um, you know, this movie, like, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll talk about how you guys feel about it. But for me, you know, it, it always just puts me in this place of thought, right? And I'm sure we'll talk about the themes that, you know, my, my brain will start fixating on and swirling around uh, for hours after I watch this movie. But I absolutely love it. I, w- I would even go so far as to describe it as like a work of art, right? Like, I don't care how cliche and almost pretentious that sounds. I absolutely love this movie. Um, it always gets me thinking. Yeah, no, I totally agree with Jay. I think that this movie is a masterpiece. You know, we talked last time before we, when we were introducing the series kind of, and, and I believe I said that there were a couple, at least a couple of movies that we were going to be watching that I consider among my all-time favorite movies. Uh, and this movie was at number 20 on my list on Letterboxd, and it will remain there. It hasn't lost anything for me. There's only one Nolan movie currently that is above uh, this one on my all-time favorites list. Um, I can still remember when I watched this for the first time in high school and just walking around just like, oh my gosh, for the next week, like mind blown, asking everyone, all of my friends, if they had seen this movie and if not, like being like, I'll, I'll let you borrow it. Like come watch it. You know, cause, cause I just needed to like discuss this with someone and like try to piece through what I had just watched. And yeah, like I said, the movie hasn't really lost its luster for me. It's, it's a low budget film, just like we talked about with, uh, with following, obviously, you know, not quite as low budget as that, but um, still, I think Nolan makes it work. And I think that, formally this movie is so much more interesting than following was we talked about how the the sort of temporal structure of following didn't seem to really serve much purpose in the plot or at least i talked about that um and that's not the case here for you know reasons that we'll probably get into i think that the the way that nolan uh constructs the film uh, actually ma- makes complete sense for the story he's telling the char- the character's perspective that he's telling it from um and so i think from that perspective, it's a it's a dazzling feat what he's able to do with how he how this movie is constructed again from scene to scene, um, and the way he really puts us in the mindset of Leonard Shelby. Uh, something I read about on Letterbox that I picked really, I mean, th- this is something you notice from the first time you watch it, but that really stuck with me this time was that this is a very dark and bleak movie. Um, there's really no, there's really not much of a silver lining uh, to you know what what eventually happens at the end of this movie, and I think that while some of Nolan's other like puzzle box movies, if you want to characterize them as that, you know, like Inception or The Prestige, 
Nolan's having fun in those movies. It's fun, like to to just like go with the bag of tricks that he's pulling out. Um, you know, like in Inception, where they're like, "We're going to go a layer deeper." You're like, "Sure, why not?" Yeah, that's this is fun. We're having fun. Um, with this movie, it, it's that's really not the case. He's really he's it's it's very clinical the way that he again uses this uh, particular way that he constructs the scenes and really the, the only message that you get from it in the end is that this is a depressing life that this guy is living and uh you know you you wouldn't really wish the condition that he has on your worst enemy probably um and, and so it's necessary i think for him to tell the story in the way that he you know that he does but i don't think it it has the same like spirit of fun and like you know i'm having fun just you know pulling out my bag of tricks on the audience as some of his other movies do and you know, people are going to have different reactions to that. I happen to like that. I happen to think that that's why the movie stands above some of the movies like Inception and The Prestige, at least for now. Again, we're rewatching all of these for a reason, but um, I, because I, I love the the, re the realistic feel of it. Um, and and so I, I, as much as I enjoy those other movies, I think this one has always stood the tallest for me and for now continues to stand the tallest just because as far as like mystery films go, it is it is the cream of the crop. Um, and, you know, it's no surprise that this may be putting Nolan on the map. Yeah, I think that I mean, we'll, we're going to talk about in more even in more detail, the, the I think the storytelling element here of a second. But again, in a second. And but again, I think that this is one of those things where it, it is kind of a, like I laid out at the outset. This feels like an evolution in what he was doing uh, from following. I think that I'm a little bit more positive on that storytelling or at least see a few some a few more similarities maybe than than you do, Scott. I think that it, following the purpose of of the way it lays out the narrative is to build suspense and dread. And if you laid it out, you know, in a straightforward manner, you'd you would have you would know certain things about the plot uh, that no one wants to build up to. Do those things that you learn at the end ultimately have the same impact and delivery and weight and dread associated to them as what we get in Memento? No, because that's where the evolution takes place is that he refines that instead of three story arcs, he's showing you two. And in a way that doesn't feel random when you're at first watching it, it feels very <coughs> intentional. You're starting from the beginning, you're starting from the end and you meet in the Well, you meet in the middle, though, really, you meet really at the beginning because the forward, the forward going narrative is, is just really a few hours of time. Um, but yeah, I think overall, I mean, this movie is really, really impressive feat. It's one of those things where you know, I, I watched it for the first time and we talked about it on the, at the end of the last episode how I hadn't seen this movie before. Jay kind of alluded to it just a moment ago when he was giving his general impressions. And I, I watched this for the first time the other night. And when I was watching it, you know, I will have like I have a couple small complaints that I'll may, maybe I'll get into in a, in a second. When we talk in more detail about the storytelling. But overall, it's just one of those things where like it's incredible how this story was crafted i mean forget forget the whole deal with how the action movies actually shot and things like that just constructing a story in this way that that storytelling and that narrative drive is so interesting like how you come up with the idea of i'm going to tell a story from two different from the same with the same character from two different perspectives and i'm going to meet at the finale you know at the climax of the film uh which it doesn't seem immediately apparent that if you're writing this narrative in a straightforward way is going to be the climax of the film necessarily. I mean, there is definitely a construction of this movie and I'm sure, and I know that that exists. There's a cut that's very, that is, you know, chronological, a chronological cut of the movie out there that ends with the beginning of this film. And 
it, 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 even in that there is a there is a bit of a finale in that as well and there's different ways to look at it but the way that nolan decides to approach this movie and construct it in the way and tell it in the way that he does is just so interesting and fascinating and he again teases for movies to come but it's just clearly so interested in the concept of time uh the time time here maybe not as strong of a theme as others uh, obviously mem memory being a more important one and what matters in terms of what you remember but time is int intimately linked with memory you have to put those things together to understand because for most of the movie you really aren't 100 percent sure where you are in time which i think is a really interesting uh part of the film as well it seems like yes you know you're going back and forth from these two narratives and they are converging toward each other but you don't know how much time is really set between these two narratives and you don't know how much time is set between what happened originally to Leonard to get him to where he is and now and I think that's a critical part of the of the narrative and the tension and the dread um, that that you feel in, in this film and, and I just think that's so fascinating and um, since we're on the topic uh, I mean I will say that I think the performances are really strong uh, Guy Pierre I was reading a little bit about this movie and to hear that Brad Pitt was strongly connected to this role before Guy Pierce uh, ultimately won it uh, is was a super interesting thought and to imagine someone with the star power of a Brad Pitt and uh, in in this film as opposed to someone who's much less well known than him and, and I imagine at the time a relative unknown in that lead role I think also lends itself quite well uh, to what's going on here but we can talk about the performances a little bit later I do want to talk more about the storytelling now Jay uh, what are your thoughts I mean again you gave your high level thoughts already but what are your more uh, uh, I don't know, explicit thoughts on how the story unfolds. I mean, I'm, I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm really waiting to hear what your complaints about the story are. Um, you know, to me, how do I even say this? I think I'm one of those people that doesn't like to harp on the idea of like suspension of disbelief. And I think there is like some amount that needs to go into this because if you, if you, I think if you really start to drill down a little bit, you know, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll find, I guess, issues for lack of a better word. Um, with you know how quickly i mean if you really think about how much unfolds uh in the in the color in the color timeline that's moving backwards you know it is quite a bit that seems to happen in you know a ridiculously short amount of time but also like you said scott you know the, the fact that he was able to kind of piece this together in uh in a way that not only makes sense but scott like you said you know the the time jumps actually you know add to the story it doesn't just feel like something that's you know, been thrown in. It really, it adds to the storytelling, you know, like I, I think my appreciation of this movie really comes from that, right? Like not so much like what is the actual like action that's happening and, you know, this like, I'll just, you know, use the example of like the character Dodd and the fact that, you know, uh, Guy Pierce has been, you know, tasked with like killing him. Like, you know, that to me, like is such like a forgettable part of the movie, but you know, the fact that, you know, he's like, again, jumping through hoops, trying to figure out what's going on, you know, as we are to watching this happen. And, you know, we are similarly like lost in time. All that just makes me really like the way the story is told. Yeah. Scott, any other thoughts you want to add? Yeah, no, I, I think I, I agree. And I think that um, to go to sort of talk about it more in depth, I think, what I like about this movie, and and I, Scott, I, I will say I agree with you that I think that the structure, the the temporal structure and following, yes, the purpose was absolutely to build suspense. I, I don't disagree with that. I just think that it was an 
number one, overly complicated, and number two, like very deliberately constructed way to pull the wool over your eyes, as opposed mm -hmm. to this form of storytelling, I think feels much more natural just because of the the perspective, the, the place that Leonard Shelby is in. And that's what I like about the movie is that like whether we realize it or not as we're watching the movie, the structure of the movie is putting us in Leonard's shoes, right? Because first of all, we scenes are starting and we don't know who certain people are. We don't know what's going on. We don't know why things are happening. It's like we are Leonard and we're waking up or, you know, we're the, the time loop in his head is resetting or however it really works. Um, that's exactly the, per, the place that Nolan puts us in. And furthermore, as we're watching these scenes unravel, we have to keep trying to remember what happened beforehand uh, so that everything will make sense, just like Leonard is probably trying to do himself. And so it almost gives us a, a form of short-term memory loss just because of the way that the movie is constructed. And I just think that that's, that's brilliant. I'm not sure how they came up with the idea to, to tell the story from this way, but it would have been such a different film if they didn't do this, I think. And it's, it's a much better film for how ingeniously um, it, it was constructed. And yeah, the only other thing is just like talking about what I, what I said before about how this movie, it's more clinical in the way that it tells the story. I think what I really mean is that, like in Inception, for example, there's there's this there's these rules that he creates for himself, but he's kind of creating new rules and, and bending the rules and everything as we move along through this dreamscape. In this movie, it's very clear what the rules are from the very beginning, right? Like in terms of how the movie is structured, in terms of what Leonard is Leonard's condition is and how it works. And he doesn't really deviate from that course from the entire movie. Like this the scenes are constructed the exact same way. There's no like sort of manipulation of the the time. Uh, structure at any point. It's just, um, you know, it, it all fits together incredibly well. Um, and, and, you know, he, again, he, what, what he presents at the beginning of the movie is the same thing as the end of the movie. We just understand the story in such a different, we just understand things in such a different way because of how the story is played out. But so, so those are just some of the reasons why I think that from a storytelling perspective, this might be the best storytelling that is in any Nolan film. Yeah, I think it's hard to argue with this being kind of the first to to really successfully do something. Obviously, he doesn't attempt to replicate perfectly uh, something like Memento. He tries different storytelling techniques that we'll get to. I mean, Dunkirk, for example, he's you know really playing with time and height. And Inception's the same way. Uh, and we, so we will get to more films that that try slightly different versions of the same uh, conceit that he started in following, and it feels like. Like I said, he really evolved it here in Memento. I think that it's it's so interesting to think about the fact that we feel like we are in Leonard Shelby's shoes, Scott, because it, it feels right, even though we know what's going to happen after what happens in the film, which Leonard doesn't. But just like Leonard, we can't remember what happens uh, in the scene that for us happens right after what we see. But for him, of course, happens right before, because in chronological order, for it, it's already happened for him. But for us, we're about to see it. And so it. I think the description that you give around you're racking your memory to remember what happens in the future to try to make it all make sense is such an interesting concept because there are so few movies out there who will one, have like tried to do that, but two, have done it uh, effectively, let alone as effectively as what Nolan is able to do here. Just to, to briefly air my one or two small complaints is I think that some of the, some of the time with the with the time skips, it gets really choppy. In the middle, I think it really flirt. It really flits from scene to the scene pretty quickly. I mean, there's literally one scene in the color narrative that I think is literally like 30 seconds, and I'm like, I don't even understand what the what the point 
of cutting right here is like you could just put those two scenes together um and again the better a movie is the the more easier it is to nitpick things and i think that that's an example of that it just felt a little bit choppy and uh not that i got lost at, at any point but again just felt like uh the, the pacing was a bit off sometimes in the middle um and even yeah. also to the in the beginning to, to some degree as well yeah, no, I think that that is true. I, I just wonder if that is meant to signify that Leonard doesn't really know when his memory is going to reset, right? It's not like after eight minutes, my my memory will reset. Maybe sometimes it only takes a minute and then he's, again, he's forgotten where he is and what's going on. I, I don't know if that's what it's meant to signify, but uh, I think that could be one reason why he does that. But you're right about that is the way that those, that is the the duration of those scenes in the middle. Yeah, I mean, that's possible. But at the same time, then there are other scenes where massive time skips happen and there's no way he remembers everything like in the scene. So like there he's like burning his wife's like stuff. And then he goes to like Natalie's house. Like there's no I don't feel like there's any like he drives all the way to Natalie's house. I feel like there's no way he remembers what happens at the park in that. And, and again, this is like this is not a major complaint about the film. It's just um, mm -hmm. I think that it, your explanation is a plausible one. And I think that that's probably what's happening in those scenes where it's to signify the choppiness of the memory. And if he's not staying focused, then he won't remember what happened. But there's several scenes where longer passages of time happen. And uh, I doubt that he's able to remember all the way to the beginning of the scene. Either way, that's that's one of my more minor complaints about the the storytelling element of it because overall it's a pretty captivating way to tell a story and i feel like it's amazing that we've gotten i don't know like 20 to 25 minutes into this podcast and we've barely talked at all about any of the performances uh, maybe such as the nature of of the series maybe and chris nolan as a director writer etc uh, but guys let, let's turn our attention a little bit towards those performances now you have guy pierce uh which we briefly mentioned earlier is as the lead character leonard shelby carrie ann moss who plays natalie and then Joe Pantoliano, who plays Teddy, uh, also uh, John Edward Gamble, who's the undercover police officer. Uh, guys, uh, Jay, we'll start with you as, as usual here. Uh, what is the standout performance for you from the cast? It's definitely Guy Pierce for me. And I actually, you know, for all my Nolan fandom, I don't think I knew that Brad Pitt was initially linked to this main role. Um, and I'll, I'll stand by Guy Pierce. I mean, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? But you know, seeing uh, how he played this, I mean, his performance to me, you know, is one of my maybe top three Nolan performances. I, I might come to regret that uh, saying this, you know, when we're a few movies later, but... You can change uh, it. I mean, you don't have to and, stick to it. And maybe it. I will, but no, I I really like his performance in this. That's uh, that's not to take away from either, the, uh, either of the other two. Uh, both Moss and Pantoliano, you know, uh, I think also do a good job, you know, kind of again because you know you're supposed to feel one way about them and then kind of realize something else it, it almost feels like they're playing multiple versions of maybe not even multiple versions but you know they're they're, they're trying to show you different sides <laughs> radically different sides uh of who they are you know from like scene to scene and i think they do a good job kind of convincing me you know that they are you know that, that they are like i guess like different sides of the same coin not just radically like you know or unreasonably changing versions of their characters if that makes sense yeah i think that's an interesting point scott what do you think yeah no i i agree with jay i think that if you're talking about the best performances in nolan films obviously there's one to come that comes to mind that i think is probably easily top of the list but when you get below that uh this my, guy what guy pierce does here might be my favorite uh after you know that that other one um because i i think that it's 
it's somewhat subtle what he does. But, you know, talking about the Brad Pitt thing, I actually think Brad Pitt wouldn't have been that bad of a choice for this. Oh, I agree. Yeah. Just thinking about like what he was able to do in Ad Astra last year, for example, I think that that could have that kind of performance would have lended itself well to this movie, just because I think what uh, what Pierce does really well is the blank slate, emotionally withdrawn thing, which is absolutely what this, you know, how this character would be probably like, first of all, he's gone through this like incredibly emotionally tumultuous time of, you know, having his wife die and that be the last thing that he remembers. That's kind of just like drained all of the emotion out of him. And then, you know, he's constantly waking up, so to speak, in a world that he doesn't really know very much about and having to piece everything back together just from these clues that he's he's provided for himself. It makes sense that he would be kind of a blank slate, not really know you know how how he feels about anything in particular and not really be reacting in big emotional ways to anything because he probably doesn't understand the full context of what's going on and so i think that that's a hard thing to pull off um from pierce's perspective but i think he does it really really well in this movie um as for the other two i i agree with jay i think the interesting part of their performances is um I mean, they're good performances, but it's more the way that Nolan pe- pe- peels back the layers of these characters as we get further into the movie. Like for for a long time, we are seeing these characters much in the same way that Leonard is seeing them, uh, and you know we are looking at them with the perspective of you know here's what what Leonard has written about this character on the back of the you know the Polaroid picture or whatever. Teddy is not to be trusted, and that's kind of all we really know about this guy. Um, for a while, he's just kind of this guy who keeps popping up. We don't really know how Leonard has met him. We don't know what his significance is in this whole murder plot or anything really um, until right until Nolan wants us to know. Right, he's so in control of the storytelling the whole time um, that eventually he he reveals what he wants to reveal about these characters. And the same thing with Natalie, right? Obviously the, the revelation that she's also kind of manipulating um, Leonard in a way uh, is, is kind of, is a shocking um, revelation because we have come to see this character in a particular way. Um, and all of a sudden it shifts on a dime. Um, and I think that Moss and Pantoliano, and by the way, the correct way to refer to Joe Pantoliano is, of course, Joey Pants. But uh, I think that the way that um, they play their performances, I think Jay is right that the strength of them is that when these shifts happen, you believe it, right? You believe that this is the same person and that it's not that the character, it's not that the performance has just gone wildly in a different direction. It's that we are now seeing this character in a different way because of what Nolan is doing behind the camera. So I I think that they're all three excellent performances. Yeah, I think that's exactly what I was going to say was this, this notion that your perception of these characters, you know, we'll get to that later on for sure. I want to talk about how perceptions of characters change over the course of the film, but regardless of what you think at the beginning versus what you think at the end, some, something you will either doubt yourself, question it or change your mind about it. If not all three, uh, experience all three over the course of the film. And the remarkable part is that it always feels like the exact same performance. It doesn't feel like the acting has changed at all, but rather the characterization has changed. And uh, it, it really, I think, speaks a lot to all three performances. I think that's true of all three performances. Guy Pierce, of course, 
being the central role in this film has more screen time, has more time to impress. But Scott, I was actually did want to follow up on that as well. I could totally see Brad Pitt in the role. I think it would just be such a different experience to think about someone like Brad Pitt having been in this yeah. role now, as opposed to someone <laughs> like Guy Pierce. Because if you think about Fight Club, like he has the he has the pretty much the exact same look as Guy Pierce. I think he's this sort of uh, mysterious, somewhat lanky figure. He has like the spiky hair. A little bit. I mean, I think it, it would have fit. It made sense, and it was only because of scheduling conflicts that he didn't end up being in this film. And then they they went the direction of of Guy Pierce, who's clearly, I think, uh, very passionate about this role, and probably is is maybe his best role of his career. Uh, though uh, you could probably make some arguments for some other films, but regardless, like Mandarin man, L.A. Confidential. <laughs> like I said, you could make arguments for other films, although I don't know if I uh, give Jay's. Uh, too much credit. Anyway, uh, moving on from that, I I think, yeah, the performance is, is really strong. And it's one of those weird films, and this isn't a slight on any of the performances, because like I said, I think they're consistent in a movie that lacks sort of characterization consistency, which is not a complaint. Uh, it really evolves quickly uh, over the course of the film in certain key moments, like you guys were saying, is that at the same time, it seems like uh, these characters or these actors just really just become their characters. It's only because you know, uh, or you've seen the matrix, right? That like, you know, or you have these necessary preconceptions about who Carrie and Moss or the kind of character Carrie and Moss might be playing. It's only because of the matrix that you might uh, have some preconceptions. And uh, I mean, other roles as well for Joe Pantoliano, but uh, why you have these certain preconceptions uh, about the kind of character that these uh, actors, these, these two actors, these two supporting actors play in this. And, Funnily enough, I think the movie really takes those preconceptions that you're going to have from something like The Matrix and plays with them. You know, gives you your first impression of each of these characters that maybe sits in line with with your perceptions uh, from other films that they've been in, and then plays with them over the course of the film. And so, uh, even in the performances themselves, it feels like Nolan is still tinkering, which is why maybe he's just such a unique, not necessarily unique, but such a masterful director in that way that he's able with his characterizations, with his directing to still overshadow really strong performances. Yeah. So, I mean, we talked a little bit about the performances. I do want to shift to the plot now, talk a little bit more about these characters. And there's really no other place to start than with Leonard Shelby, who is the, you know, like I said, the lead role. We talked about Guy Pierce's performance. We talked about how this way the story is told fills you with dread. And the reason that it fills you with dread is because you know that there's something you don't know about Leonard and something is going to come to a head by the end of the film. Jay, we'll start with you again here. What did you think of this character of Leonard Shelby? Was it an, I mean, yeah, I think we all agree here that it's an interesting character and we can talk about the, I do want to save the finale for the finale, but what do you think about this, this journey that we go on with him both backwards through time and forwards? Sure. So yeah, uh, omitting the ending, you know, it, it, it definitely starts you off with a, a bit of a bang, no pun intended, right? And in that, you know, you've, you've met this guy for a few minutes and like right off the bat, you know, he's killed someone and it seems like, you know, based on the way that the guy reacted, you know, uh, the, the guy he was killing reacted, you know, like maybe he shouldn't have or was making some sort of dire mistake and didn't realize it, like who's to say? And then, you know, as the movie goes on, like, you know, for me, like, you really, you kind of do want to root for him, right? Like, even though he's seemingly done these questionable things, and, you know, there's that, there's that conversation they have, I, I want to say it's in a diner, where, uh, where uh, Teddy and Leonard are talking about, you know, how memory is unreliable, and how he sticks to his facts, uh, and, you know, like, and you, you want to feel justified in rooting for him, but you almost can't, um, 
I, I don't know, like, I guess I'm, I almost play jump rope with that line, you know, depending on what part of the movie I'm thinking about. Um, but again, that to me, you know, is, is part of the fun I have with this movie, right? Is in parts of it, you know, I'm very much like, I want to root for this guy. Like, he's clearly like trying to do something good. Again, ending notwithstanding. Um, but then, you know, there are moments where you're like, you know, it, it is kind of uh, asinine to leave a man's life up to a few notes you left yourself, right? Yeah, I think, uh, once again, I agree with Jay. I, I Even though this character is a blank slate, kind of like I talked about with Guy Pierce's performance, I think we do want to root for him just because we see we see the position that we, he he is in is in you know an unenviable position and we also we see the ways that he is trying to exercise some sort of control over the you know a very uncontrollable situation that he finds himself in you know by the tattoos by the pictures right and he's not completely clueless at times like when people try to take advantage of him he at at certain points like he is able to to call them out like when they're going to the car for example uh towards the beginning of the movie and teddy tries to take him to a different car and he's like no i know that like i know what the right car is or whatever um he's not he's not completely clueless right we see him trying to make an effort to do what he can with this condition and to make sure that people aren't taking advantage of him. And obviously we, we don't want people to take advantage of him because that's not a very nice thing to do. Um, and so I think that, um, yeah, yeah, we do want to want to root for him. And then just the whole quest of trying to find his, his wife's killer. I mean, again, that's an inherently, that's an sympathetic, uh, journey and, as soon as he reveals that tattoo, right? John G raped and murdered my wife. Uh, I, we're kind of in with him on his quest. Cause again, it's, this is all about, I think his uh, quest to sort of control uh, anything that he possibly can in his life when, when so much is out of his, his control is, Hey, I know that my wife was raped and murdered. Uh, I know who did, I know I have some idea of who did it. Um, this is my own personal journey, um, and I am not going to stop. No, no matter how hard it gets with my condition, I am not going to stop until I am able to avenge what happened to my wife. Uh, I mean, I think that that's a yeah, story, a through line that we have seen from uh, many characters in many other films. Um, but because of his condition, I think adds an extra layer of uh, empathy for the character when um even when he's not giving us much emotion to work with yeah it's something that he like it feels like he knows rather than he feels which is i think is an interesting mm -hmm. uh balance there yeah I mean, he's an interesting character and you're absolutely right i mean this the entire first part of the movie sets you up in a position where like look maybe you're questioning the vigilante you know the vigilanteism of what he's doing um going after his killers, you know, as kind of a rogue operative, so to speak, and, and not really letting the police, uh, you know, solve the investigation. Of course, he says like, oh, like the police are investigating it. They thought like they like closed the case. There's another guy who who, you know, assaulted me and got away. And so you, you, it sets up this narrative. Absolutely. Because it's told from his perspective, even though things are going backwards, um, that it's hard not to, like you said, Scott, sympathize with him at the very least and feel for him and, and want to root for him to find whatever closure that he's looking for uh, in the film. And of course the whole start of the movie sets you up where it's like, Oh, he kills John G like the beginning of the movie strange, like strangely, you know, on the surface is the closure for the journey that you're going on just in reverse. 
through time. Of course, it's never as simple as that. Otherwise, there really wouldn't have been much of a point of showing you uh, the end of the you know the end of the story at the beginning. But that's how it sets you up, and so it's, I think it's impossible uh, not to to feel that way. And of course, that's very intentional, and that gets played with. Uh, the more you uncover, and the more you kind of questioned and or maybe turned off a little bit by things that happen uh, over the course of the film. I mean, the whole thing. Uh, I thought one of the more striking scenes of the film for me was the scene right before he burns all of his wife's stuff, which is when he has the the escort uh, come to his room and like recreate the night of mm-hmm. of the assault on his wife. And I just found that such a unsettling scene to watch for a bunch of different reasons. And in some ways, it's maybe like the first scene that I really questioned, you know, what exactly was going on. I mean, you, you still feel sympathy, maybe even pity for for Leonard in that in that moment. But something really unsettling is happening. And I think that you it, it, it shook me a little bit at the very at the very least. But w- with that, I, I do want to talk a little bit more about some things that we've already been touching on and alluding to. And that's the relationships that he has with these other you know two main supporting roles. Obviously, We've already gotten into some spoilers, uh, but I mean, if, if somehow you missed them earlier on, I think that there's going to be a lot of spoilers now. And that is, you know, his relationship with Teddy and his relationship with Natalie. I think it's two separate relationships that are, you know, unavoidably linked uh, because these two people, or at least Teddy, knows knows who Natalie is. Uh, yet, uh, I think you live out two very different relationships, and you see the arcs of these relationships again in reverse, which makes them even more interesting. Jay, what did you think of these relationships and, and how uh, these characters evolve? We talked about the performances already, of course, but how these relationships evolve as well. Uh, it's just, it, it sounds a little sick if I call it fun, right? But again, like, you know, uh, because I guess because of his condition, you know, they, these characters, uh, you know, of uh, Natalie and Teddy can basically decide, you know, when they see Leonard again, like what... Essentially, like what side of them, what part of their mind, or what part of this puzzle, essentially, they want to show him, right? I mean, you start with Natalie, you know, as this person who, you know, is like kind of snarky, but is helping him for some reason. And then, you know, I guess she was involved with him, but only because she was trying to, you know, mess with him, but only because he maybe killed her partner. Like, you know, it, again, like, you know, you, you, you go through so many different, like, motions of like, okay, like, these people are like definitely bad, but maybe kind of justified because Leonard is, you know, dragging them through this whole thing and, you know, watching that evolution. You know, if you, if you like just really fixate, I think on Teddy's character, right? Especially, you know, he presents himself in a few different ways as, you know, like, oh, I'm your buddy. No, like I'm this cop, you know, oh, I've been trying to get you out of here for a while. Oh, I've been working this case with you forever. Like, you know, it, there's, there's really just, you know, it's, it's so much unreliability. Uh, until you, I guess, you know, get to the end again, where you, I guess, you know, maybe have a clearer picture of everything that's happened. Um, but, you know, I, I guess to me, like the fun of it is, you know, watching them put on these different sides, uh, you know, at, at his expense because of his condition. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, one of the scenes that you're talking about, I think in particular with the, the scene with Natalie, especially the one in the house where, you know, it starts out as this scene where, or I guess earlier on in the movie, you've seen she, you know, she has a bloody nose, a cut lip or whatever, and you assume that it's this Dodd guy who chases, of course, chases Leonard down, you know, shoots at him eventually, of course. Because um, that's what she says happened also. Exactly, like she yeah. She says it was Dodd, yeah. 
yeah, she says it's dotted, and you see the scene where she comes back. You know, you see her face the way it is, and then you know she she tells him exactly what uh, what happened, and then you know this you know the next color scene that you get is actually finding out that he is the one who who hits her and pushes her to the floor and um there's no good characters in this film is maybe an argument you could take but then what she does and uh, as her sort of revenge is walk outside wait a few minutes walk back in and tell him that something else has happened and send him off on a chase that she can only assume is going to get him killed uh by telling him to to uh telling dot about him or going after dot whatever whatever it is right that's a that's a wild goose chase that is supposed to get him killed and doesn't somehow uh he manages to to get out of it and uh through sheer dumb luck maybe but yeah I, it's a i think that's another example of a scene that you're just kind of sort of horrified by but then you still feel a little bit of pity for leonard um it's a very strange how the perspective continues to develop that sympathy and pity for leonard and also reorients your first impressions of these characters. Scott, I know you still need to speak on this topic. Anything else to add? Yeah, no, I would just echo what y'all say. I think just the way that, and it all starts at the beginning, right? Like, because what is the first thing that we know about either of these characters, right? Teddy, he is not to be trusted, right? It's what's it's what's on the, the photo. Natalie, she has lost someone too. Uh, you know, she will help you out of pity. Like, and that is that is how we understand the characters from the very beginning. That is how they're set up. But like you said, as the movie goes on, they almost re reverse positions in a way, right? Because we we think that Teddy is kind of the you know despicable guy who's really playing Leonard, and um, you know, again, he's not to be trusted. Um, and there is a little bit of that, right? Like he does manipulate him in certain ways, but at the end of the movie, I think Teddy is kind of a patsy, right? Like he's, he is just this, this, this undercover cop who has gotten dragged into this probably because of the, the, um, actions of Natalie largely, uh, like you said, Scott, he's, she really sends him after Teddy kind of because it's probably going to get him arrested or killed or something uh, at the very least. Um, and and so Natalie, who we think is this person that, oh, again, we can trust her. She's lost someone and maybe is even a potential love interest for for Leonard. In the end, no, she's she's the one who's sort of orchestrating so much of what's going on with the plot. Uh, and just so the way that Nolan is manipulating us as viewers yeah. uh, is, is brilliant. <laughs> yeah. And on that point, we'll jump into the finale and talk about that because i question whether it is natalie is the one who sends yeah. him after teddy because really it's it is uh it's it is leonard it's leonard who sends yeah. himself thanks for giving teddy. us a couple extra seconds to avoid that spoiler <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah uh it really is leonard who sends sends himself after teddy by planning this idea bomb uh on himself that the license plate of john g is teddy's license plate um you could say Teddy shoots himself in the foot a little bit by saying, hey, heck, I'm even a John G. Um, and does it that way at the end of the film. But yeah, really the finale, I think we're, we're skirting over the main plot points here because they're not that they're forgettable, but just to something that Jay said earlier in the film is so much happens in this in this final scene. I mean, you learn why it is that Natalie is, you know, messing with him because it's actually Leonard is the one who killed uh, the person that's that she has lost from the beginning of the film that's written uh, on the Polaroid picture. And it's only Leonard's frustration uh, with this sort of detective game that Teddy describes to him that's been happening for, is it over a year 
uh, now. I mean, they originally uh, he he claims that they found the original killers over a year ago, and they've been doing this cyclical wild goose chase for a year because there are an infinite number of John G's, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's frustration with this environment and this sort of weirdly immature recklessness or I don't know, quest seeking mentality of my actions have to matter. Even though I can't remember anything, things that I do have to matter and wanting to do things that do matter. That feels like is what drives Leonard, uh, to load this silver bullet, so to speak, into his gun uh, in that in that scene uh, at the end of the film. I don't know if there's really too much more to add because the finale just is such a a shocking, uh, I don't know, raising of the curtain around everything that's happened. To your point, Scott, I think it's it. If if you look at things empirically or objectively, your opinions about all the characters in the film should have should have switched. Right, like you should no longer feel good about Leonard. You should maybe have mixed, but probably not feel good about Natalie. And you should feel good about Teddy. But I think I'd like to ask the question, guys, is that the way we feel at the end of the movie? Yeah, I, I don't know, because I think, you know, it, Teddy talks about um, how they, well, they found the killers a year ago, like you said. But I think there's still the implication there that could Leonard have been the killer all along? Uh, could he have been the one that kills his wife? Um, you know, because we have this whole element with the Sammy Jenkins story yeah. that we haven't really talked about, right? And talking was that a real thing that happened? Or, you know, is that maybe what what happened with Leonard, right? Does his wife maybe survive whatever he's remembering in his head as his wife's death? And then he actually kills her later because of this whole, because there's the whole diabetic thing. Who was a diabetic, right? Was yeah. it Sammy Jenkins's wife? Was it Leonard's wife? We don't know, right? And I think that's, again, something else that adds to the bleakness of the movie is, um, is, is the fact that maybe this whole thing Yes, this whole detective quest, right, is Leonard's own creation, but maybe even what that stems from, the event that he thinks he remembers as the last thing before all of this happened, may not even be what he thinks he remembers it is. It may not even be his wife's death. Um, and so I think that that is one reason, right, why, why maybe Teddy is still manipulating him at the end, right? Maybe he's um, t telling him about this quest, but really not... Um, giving him all, all of the details, because maybe, I don't know, maybe he doesn't want to hurt Leonard. Maybe he doesn't want to give Leonard what the actual truth is. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I, I think the brilliance of the ending, like like we've touched on, is just that all the while, all the while we've seen every, every character that he's really come into contact with manipulating him. And in the end, we find out really he was manipulating himself the whole time by sending himself um, out on this quest. And again, that's a, that's a depressing thing because we don't know how long is this going to continue on, right? Like you can continue yeah. on indefinitely because there are so many John G's in the world, right? And if, if Leonard wants to continue this quest, he's going to continue this quest. Uh, and it, it really just shows, I think, again, talking about how tough this condition is, um, the fact that he has gone to all this trouble to basically give himself a purpose in life, right? So that he doesn't have to sit around alone and think, you know, with just his condition and just think about his condition and think about his wife's death over and over again. Um, it's, it's, again, it's not a fate that you would wish on your, your worst enemy. And, but I think it's, and it's, it's an absolutely effective ending to the story and uh, the way that we have been set up to understand this condition the whole time. Yeah. We'll circle back around to everything. Sammy Jankus, as well as uh, I'll ask the final question I'll get to will be, 
what do we believe is the truth? But Jay, first, any more thoughts on the finale? Uh, to answer your your last question about you know how, is is how you described about the characters how we feel. Um, I, I I don't feel good for any of them, right? Like at at the end of it, like you know you. I think I get to a point where I realize like every person in this movie, like I, I don't want to be so like reductionist to say as like is a bad person, but I certainly don't feel good when, or about any of them. I don't really necessarily even feel for them. Um, like any like sympathy, right. Just, you know, just because of everything that's been said, like, you know, we, you know, we got flashes of, you know, okay. Like maybe these people are trying to do some good or have some, you know, intrinsically good motivations behind their actions. But I, I think, you know, Scott, to steal your phrase about the bleakness of this movie, like this is where for me it all just comes for a head. And I I think, you know, the reason why I walked around, you know, when I was in high school and watched the first time for a week with just this sense of, oh my God, was just, wow, like they all suck. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting perspective because I think that worse, if you really did look at it from a more objective and you, and you eliminated your first impression, does Teddy suck that much? We'll get to that question uh, maybe in in a little bit, and we can maybe debate that more. But I do want to briefly touch on these uh, the Sammy Jankis story, which I, I did skip it early, skip over it earlier, because I think it's more interesting to talk about now in the context of everything that we know. Because you know, even from the beginning of the film, the first time you hear this story and you, and you hear it repeated over and over again, or you hear kind of the black and white narrative kind of tell the story of Sammy Jankis on the phone, you realize like, look, Chris Nolan's not spending twenty minutes or whatever of this film on telling you a story that's not going to matter at the end of it. So, you know, something is going to some, something about the story matters a lot beyond just the fact that uh, this is something that he tells a lot. This is a story he tells everyone that he meets. Um, and it comes to a head where at the end of the film, Teddy's character is questioning uh, Scott, you alluded to this earlier is questioning whether or not that Sammy Jenkins is really the person that, that Leonard describes. Of course, Sammy Jenkins was a real person, but did he have a wife? Did he have a wife who was diabetic? Guy Pierce had, or Leonard Leonard had a wife. Leonard, according to Teddy, had a wife who was diabetic, and really doesn't necessarily explicitly say that Leonard uh, is the Sammy Jenkins of the story that is told. But he does certainly uh, impl like imply that that it is in fact uh, it is in fact Leonard who killed his wife. Uh, in that his wife survived the the rape and assault that happened in their house that left him with anterior grade amnesia. And rather than accept that fact and trust Teddy, who at the time he has no indication that he should or shouldn't trust him, he doesn't have, he hasn't yet written the note to himself to don't trust his lies. But of course, that uh, kind of crushes his entire worldview of what he's able to, to tell himself. And I think that another thing, a question I'm, I'm throwing a lot of questions out here that, that rises is how Leonard has been able to tie this Sammy Jenkins character into a story that has happened after he had amnesia, which I think is within where you start to question whether you believe what Teddy says is that if this is true, how does he have this memory to tell the story at all? How is he able to recall Sammy Jenkins, who Teddy does say is a real person from before from before the the home invasion? But how is he able to tie what happened after if if you were to believe Teddy, how are you able to tie what happens after the home invasion to a story that happens uh, before? 
again, there's so many different ways. I don't think there is a right or a wrong answer about this because the entire story is built around this fact is why can't Sammy Jenkins create new memories? He should, you know, biologically be able to still create uh, memories because his condition is psychological in nature rather than physical. Guys, I don't know if you have any thoughts about this. Uh, and I don't know if there's an answer. This almost feels like an inception-like conundrum, uh, which we will, of course, revisit in, in ambiguous endings. But do either of you feel strongly one way or the other? Yeah, I, I don't know that I really do. I think that, you know, another thing about the story is that it's set up sort of like this is just another way that Leonard makes sense of his condition, right? Like this is something that he, it seems at least like that he remembers from before everything happened. Um, and this is someone who was in a similar condition to him. And so that, that is kind of how he, um, he makes sense of his condition. Um, and, but only to find out again, right. With this, with what happens with Teddy at the end, that maybe he, maybe this is, this is all a lie too. And I think that it's just another, again, it's another potential act of manipulation, right? Because yeah, Leonard probably, maybe he remembers this from before the accident. And maybe that means that something really did happen, right? Maybe that everything he's remembering about Sammy Jenkins is, uh, is true. But when so much of what he thinks he remembers, right, is is being thrown out the window and is being revealed as false or everything. It's like, it's the sort of gaslighting that Teddy is doing, right? Like making him uh, feel like, making him doubt even the things that he should feel secure in, right? The memories that he had from before his wife's death. Um, has he constructed all of that for himself too? Just in the same way that he's constructed this detective quest to find uh, John G. Is this just some other story that he has come up with in order to make sense of his condition when he, just because he doesn't want to, you know, come to terms with what the actual truth is of his condition and of what he's done. Jay, what are your thoughts on the truth of the matter? You know, maybe, you know, we spend the whole movie, I guess, like, you know, kind of being nudged in the direction of like question everything and what is even real and yada, yada. Again, just to like put a blanket over it. Um, and like, I think for me, the, I guess the ending that is the most satisfying weirdly like you know despite the fact that it you know arguably is the bleakest right is that everything that teddy said is true um and you know like we we you know you brought up the fact that you know how does then leonard like have this like fake memory from something that happened before how is he able to like reconstruct it after the fact and teddy just kind of allude to that with the you know oh like you know you you learn through repetition right which theoretically is like something you'd be able to do under your condition as was explained earlier in the movie um, and again, like, you know, that's, that's where my like point at the beginning of this podcast was about, you know, the harping on the suspension of disbelief. Like, I think that is to me, like, you know, the, the reimagining of the Sammy Jenkins story and the forgetting his wife was diabetic and whatnot, you know, is kind of like, you know, it, it does raise a lot of questions like how, you know, and, you know, despite the whole, you know, oh, you can learn by repetition. But to me, you know, I, I finish this movie and I sit with, you know, okay, yes, like, you know, he was, he, he did that because he, you know, so clearly needed to create, you know, this, again, unsolvable puzzle, this path, this wild goose chase, like however you want to uh, describe it, because he needed to give himself some sense of control over, you know, his effectively ended life. I mean, you, you know, and that's, that's where I stand and what I think happened. Like, I, I believe Teddy. 
Interesting. Yeah, honestly, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what to believe. I'm not sure if I believe one way or the other. I think it's it's hard to trust Teddy, right? Because of the way the story is set up, it's hard to trust what Teddy believes or sorry, what Teddy says uh, entirely at the end of the film. You also have to think about how tired and exhausted Teddy must be from doing this for a year and a half. So is he yanking him around the same way that we saw Natalie yank him around, you know, just after knowing him for like a day, of course, something else explicitly happening to her in her life that is affected by that. So I think it's, it's one of those things that it's just an interesting question to ask and there may or may not be an answer, but more importantly, how important is it that there is a right or wrong answer to this question? Because Jay, one of the things that you were talking about earlier, and Scott, you've been alluding to this whole notion for the whole of the whole film is that it's bleak regardless of which way. Like, even if Teddy is telling the truth, uh, that's a bleak. That's a bleak portrayal of everything. If Teddy's <laughs> lying, it's obvious that that's also a bleak portrayal of everything going on. And really, this is just a tale of a situation that was able to go so like that certain things happened that were really terrible, you know, regardless of whether, you know, his wife died at, you know, on the night of that home invasion or the Sammy Jenkins story is really kind of what happened from that perspective. You know, he was, uh, he was victim of a home invasion. He was assaulted. He lost his memory uh, or he's unable to make new memories. He either has since spent his time trying to find the, you know, the, people who broke into his house and assaulted and, and murdered his wife. Or, uh, you know, again, he was essentially co-opted into murdering his wife because she didn't believe that he really couldn't make memories. Um, and so she repeatedly told him to give me the diet, you know, give me the insulin shot over and over again. Um, and either way, it's a bleak outlook. And I think you feel bad for Leonard. Um, it's just varying degrees of, of how bad the whole situation is. Yeah, that's that's the best way to describe the movie, I think. And on that bleak note, uh, I think we already briefly touched on some of the themes. I don't know how much more detail we need to necessarily go into it, but I did have written down on my page here themes of self-manipulation, uh, willfully misleading yourself and others, and this whole idea of life is a game to Leonard, and he has to play this game in order to feel like and know and trust that his life has meaning. Any other thoughts on any of those topics? Obviously, those are big, broad topics to that we could probably discuss for a whole other episode. I mean, yeah, I think I've just said my piece. Like, I think this is just, again, Leonard's way of giving himself a purpose so that he doesn't have to really think about the depressing reality that is his life with this condition. And that's a sad thing to think about. Um, and, you know, that's, that's what ultimately leaves us, I think, with... Um, a bad taste in our mouth, so to speak. Although, you know, the movie is obviously an incredible thing to watch. Jay, what about you? I'll echo Scott Harvey. Um, you know, the, the movie is an incredible thing to watch, you know, despite being incredibly bleak, maybe, maybe we're all fooling ourselves in some regard. Like who's to say now, now I'm going back to like 16 year old Jay, who again was walking around high school for a week, just, you know, completely, you know, mind blown from this film. But, you know, despite being like, one of the bleaker movies I think I've seen and really liked, you know, it again, so well done. And on that note, guys, what is your favorite scene or moment? Uh, what is the thing that you felt was so well done most about this film, Jay? Uh, favorite scene slash moment, which I guess just tie into, you know, what this movie did well is, you know, it, I wouldn't say this is one of those films where the 
the truth is like right in front of you the whole time. Like it, it's definitely not. But there's this one uh, moment. It, it's literally like one frame or you know a, a couple frames, whatever, where. Uh, Leonard is recalling Sammy Jenkins' story and you're seeing Sammy sitting there in, uh, I guess, like some sort of ward, right? Um, and I don't know if either of you caught this. Uh, Scott Harvey, you must have because you've seen the movie multiple times, but uh, there's there's a split second between when it cuts from showing Sammy Jenkins back to Leonard where Sammy Jenkins is sitting in the ward and then like a, a nurse, I guess, just like passes by him, blocking him. And then when she's passed by, it's actually Leonard who's sitting there. Yep. For again, like a split second. Yeah. And to me, you know, like that, I guess, you know, really just does, you know, say it all to me. Right. And it's been so much fun for me, you know, talking to my friends who I've convinced to see this movie about whether or not they caught this. Um, but to me, you know, it, it is right there. Right. And, you know, I guess to me, it, you know, very like quickly and adequately summarizes how, you know, like, you know, you can so easily like play yourself. Um, you know, in the way that Leonard, you know, has been this entire movie. I think to me, you know, that is, is an underrated, uh, but really appreciated moment. Interesting. I actually really did not like that moment. I had a lot of problems with it, but Scott, go ahead. Really? Oh, wow. yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, with, I'm, I'm on team J on this one. I think that's a really subtle and, and brilliant way of doing things, but I, uh, I'm going to go with sort of another sort of image. And it's actually like one of the first images in the film, uh, which is the Polaroid photo going backwards uh, in development, which I think is, first of all, just a very striking and cool image. And second of all, immediately puts us like right in what we're about to watch. Right? Like this is, um, yeah, this sets us up for the way that the scenes are constructed, the, the condition that Leonard finds himself in, everything just like that is told with that little image of the Polaroid um, in, in reverse, which I think is just a, a really striking and awesome way to start this movie out. Yeah, no, that <clears throat> that's a really great scene uh, moment as well, because the first time you watch this film, which I can speak from experiences that just happened a couple days ago, you're like, wait, what's happening here? Because nothing's really happening in the scene. You're just watching everything. And then all of a sudden you realize they're showing this scene in reverse. And of course, that kicks off the fact that this this narrative or this angle of the film is is happening in reverse order. But I thought that was really cool. One of the things that I think is striking about most of this film is that it feels like a lot of the scenes or like best moments in the film have more meaning after you've watched. It's not in the moment when you realize exactly like the weight of a certain thing that you're watching. I think that's also true of, of the moment you were talking about Jay. Cause I caught it. I was like, Oh, that was kind of weird. And then only later when of course they un unveiled the whole, the whole story and quite, well, I shouldn't say they unveil it. They question, you know, who Sammy Jenkins is when you go back and think about that a little bit more. I think for me, one of those similar moments is earlier on in the movie, the scene where, you know, uh, Leonard and Natalie are in bed together and you just see Natalie sitting up like awake, like eyes wide open, just staring. And I think that after, you know, everything that happens later on uh, in in the, you know, in the timeline of the film, uh, not the chronology, but the timeline, you understand why it is that she's just kind of sitting in bed, eyes wide open, just kind of thinking about, you know, clearly everything that's just happened. And this leads into what I'd say my favorite scene is, and probably what she's thinking about is that scene where, you know, you earlier on the film, you believe it's Dodd, but really it's Leonard who's beaten her up. She walks outside, she comes back in. He can't hold it. Uh, his focus long enough to remember what's happened. Can't find, she takes all the pins uh, out of her apartment. I think that's my favorite scene or moment. Cause that is the moment in the film where you realize you cannot trust anything that you've seen 
until the end of the movie. And I think that's a really jarring moment uh, in a film full of, you know, creeping dread for not being able to trust what you've seen uh, because Leonard doesn't know what's happened either, just like you. Um, so really, really great moment. I, I will touch briefly on why I don't like the scene in the J as much. It feels just like, it just feels like a little gimmicky. It doesn't feel subtle actually at all. I don't find that, that like flash moment subtle at all. Like it, it is interesting because again, it is teasing sort of the questioning of it later on, but I don't know if I, if it find if it, if I find any clarity and thinking back on that, if, if it's, I mean, maybe it's there just simply to tease the fact that it's going to question what you believe at the end of the film. But for me, that scene, that moment didn't work for me. All right, guys, let's put a score on it. Jay, what are you giving Memento? 9.5. Go big or go home, man. No, no, no. I, I, I can't. We, we still have, I, I don't want to tease too much, but like, you don't I, have to I, give I a tent only the, one movie. No, and I, I might not, but I'm, I, I need to, I need to leave myself some room because I, I need to, Again, this is one of my favorite movies, but let's call it tier 1B instead of tier 1A. Jesus. Jay coming right. out too low is not usually something that we talk about with these ratings. I know, seriously. Scott, what um, are you giving it? Yeah, no, I'm, this would not be in my top 20 favorite movies of all time if I didn't think it was a 10 out of 10. I'm, there may be plot holes that you can, minor plot holes that you can pick in it if you really want to parse through the whole thing, but uh, it's just such a mesmerizing and original film that um i don't think we'll ever see anything like again probably so 10 out of 10 yeah i think mesmerizing and original it like that it fits the category is, is it the only mesmerizing original movie of all time of course not but it certainly fits that fits that bill and for me uh shockingly probably i'm i'm siding with jay on score i'm also giving it a 9.5 but guys it, it's a fantastic phenomenal film and i can't wait to revisit this in future years and decide that i'm gonna give it a 10 in the future so there you go yeah <laughs> All right, and with I that, know I that think... we're all going to give a ten to my favorite one, so that's why I'm oh, not better. That, that depressed about it. <laughs> oh, yeah, we better insomnia, right? Yeah, next yeah, week. next week. Yeah. yeah, cool. And with that, I think that should just about do it for part two of the Nolan countdown. A uh, really fun episode. Of course, we talked for maybe too long about Memento, but who knows? Maybe we'll just with the time that we find everything out that's going to happen with coronavirus, maybe we'll just re-record another Memento episode when we have to redo the series next summer. Uh, but with that, uh, you can follow our podcast on Twitter at at MediaPlugPods. You can subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the episode notes. And don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash MediaPlugPods. Our uh, Patreon has a bunch of different reward tiers for you to check out, and you can receive various rewards depending on how much you're willing to donate uh, to the podcast. We'd appreciate it so much if you contributed even at the $1 <coughs> level. Again, that's www.patreon.com slash media plug pods check it out for yourself and pick the tier that's right for you if you choose not to support us over on patreon however that's totally fine you can still find us on apple podcasts spotify and wherever else you listen to your podcasts where we'd appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us as well as subscribed and shared all right i've said enough we really appreciate all of you for listening to part two of our brand new nolan countdown mini series don't forget to check out all the other podcasts in the some like it's got feed including our latest episode of some like it's got as well as Champ's Lunch. We'll be back next week with part three of the Nolan Countdown when the three of us will be revisiting the Al Pacino, Robin Williams, and Hilary Swank starring thriller Insomnia. Until then, for Scott Harvey and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.